Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Ugly Things Podcast. My name's Mike Stacks. For the second part of our two-part special on The Seeds, I talked to Neil Norman and Alec Palau about the history of The Seeds and their feature-length documentary, The Seeds Pushing Too Hard. Directed by Neil and produced by Alec, the movie was released in theaters in 2014 and is now available for streaming at Vimeo. Neil Norman is the son of Gene Norman, the head of GMP Crescendo Records. Gene had made his name as the owner of two Sunset Strip nightclubs, the Crescendo and the Interlude, and as a popular radio disc jockey. He started the GMP Crescendo Record Company, that's Gene Norman Presents, in 1954, releasing primarily jazz, but by 1962, the label had started delving into surf music, rock and roll, and folk. In 1965, he signed The Seeds, led by the charismatic Sky Saxon. Neil, who was in his mid-teens at the time, was an instant fan. And over the next three years, he spent countless hours hanging with the group, watching them record, rehearse, and play live concerts. So the documentary is personal for him and a true labor of love. Alec Palau is a producer, writer, archivist, and musician who has been a major force in the 60s archival market for more than 30 years, working with labels such as Ace, Big Beat, Rhino, and High Moon Records. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Today I'm with Neil Norman and Alec Palau. And um, before we get into the Seeds documentary, let's talk about your background, Neil, because the Seeds were a part of your life since you were in your early teens. The Seeds were on GMP Crescendo Records, and GNP was Gene Norman Presents, Gene Norman being your father. So please tell us a little about Gene Norman, the Crescendo Club, and GMP Crescendo Records. Sure. Well, my father, uh, he grew up in Brooklyn, and he was very intellectual, and he skipped a lot of grades. So he ended up going to Wisconsin for his college, and he graduated when he was 18. And he hitchhiked out to the West Coast and said, wow, this is fantastic. So he started very modestly being a voice artist, announcer, and he got a job on KGO in San Francisco, Oakland. And he started that way. And then slowly he went up the ladder in radio and eventually he became absolute number one on radio in Southern California. As a matter of fact, nationally, Steve Allen was number one. And even nationally, my father was number one, even though he was West Coast only. So he had an incredible voice like Orson Welles, and he knew the music, he loved the music. 
and he played the right records. He broke Nat King Cole, and he hung out with Duke Ellington, and that led to concerts and a television show, and eventually, sort of accidentally, he got into the nightclub business with Chuck Landis, and he presented every famous person of that period, from Don Rickles to Duke Ellington to Ella Fitzgerald to Bob Newhart, and I was completely swimming in all this because he let me hang out, even if I was nine years old. And he'd say, well, Neil, see that? The drummer's really good. Or he would say, that's a good piece of material. Or he'd say, well, the bass player's not making it. You know, So I was absorbed in that. And I got to hang out with Dick Gregory and Bob Newhart and Don Rickles. And Dick Gregory used to give me a dollar when we were walking down the Sunset Strip. And that was the beginning of its heyday before the rock phenomenon. So that was like roughly 54 to 64. And then it became right. rock after that because of the influence of the Beatles. So I was just totally absorbed in that. And then in junior high, seventh grade, I'd come over to the office after school and mail out records to radio stations. That's how it was done. And I'm mystified now by, you know, how do I do it on an influencer? Or how do I do it on Facebook? You know, it's like, forget it. I'm a baby boomer. I'm used to sending someone a 45. So, uh, yeah. Then I then uh, the seeds were turned down by Columbia, Electra, and Capital. It, it, there was a tape going around of "Can't Seem to Make You Mine." So my dad said, "Well, I think I hear something. What do you think, Neil?" And I, you know, I was like eleven or something, and I said, "Yeah, Dad, go for it." So and the seeds knew I did that, by the way. So it took a while to break, but it became the hottest thing in. Uh, in LA for a couple of years and we had a wonderful success and that stuff lives on and because I was there Alec and I made a film called The Seeds Pushing Too Hard and we've been having a lot of fun touring it around from Minneapolis to Encinitas to Milwaukee to Cleveland so I've gotten nothing but wonderful response and my other career is trying to be a filmmaker so uh, I went to UCLA film school so I've never had a real job. I just do what I like. Uh, but I somehow eke out a leave, living from it, and it's very challenging, but we all love it, as all of us do. Right. Okay. Well, let's talk about Sky Saxon a little bit. Um, originally, he was Richard Marsh from Salt Lake City, Utah. Then he came to LA to try to make it in the music business. Um, Alec, perhaps you could talk a little about Sky's activities prior to forming The Seeds, because he made some records. Yeah, he made a... Oh, at least half a dozen um, released records and probably, you know, many other sessions. They say, you love some, it was basically like a lot of people, you know, tramping the streets of Hollywood, looking to become the next teen idol, except he really wasn't teen idol material. Is he had a kind of a thin, whiny voice, and um, you know, it wasn't exactly James Dean uh, looks-wise. Um, but you know, he managed to engage himself with a lot of people. Um, and when things really took off, the sky is when uh, the British invasion came along, and you had groups like the Stones and the Animals. Um, you know, basically not exactly teen idol material, but for someone like Sky, it's like, hey, that's that's me. I can do that. Right. Right. And he was, you know, he was seasoned. Uh, you know, he he knew about rock and roll. He'd kind of lived, you know, grown through the Elvis era. So he knew how to do it. And um, he'd certainly been around. 
So uh, he found the other guys in the band, Daryl Hooper and uh, Rick Andridge, who both just come out from uh, Michigan, and they were doing the same kind of thing, um, more or less. Uh, and then Jan Savage also, who's originally from uh, uh, the Southwest, um, pulled these guys together and um, you know started. And the tape that Neil uh, mentioned of Can't Seem to Make Your Mind, uh, that was the first time the group sort of got together. In fact, on the tape box, it says Richie Marsh. Um, a lot of that came from a guy called Jimmy Madden, who was a, a local club owner and sort of a personage on the Hollywood scene. Uh, and he's the one that brought uh, the seeds to uh, Crescendo after they'd had the rejections that Neil mentioned. And, um, you know, all of a sudden, Sky was a star. And of course, you know, he'd been building up for this moment. So he took to it with gusto. Uh, as uh, Neil's dad used to say, you know, people were ready to hear what he had to say. Right. Neil, what was what was Sky like when when you first met him? Right, you know, back when the seeds first signed. What was your impression of him? Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons. Or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Well, when I first met him, he was on the cutting edge of hipness. They all had hair that was eight inches longer than everyone else. I mean, Daryl Hooper looked like Jesus. So uh, they were mixing the first album at Wally Hyder Studio, where Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and a lot of famous people uh, worked. I guess it was in downtown Hollywood on Selma. And they were mixing mono and stereo, and I was there, and it was hurting my ears, but I was loving the sound. They were playing loud. So we went out for a snack, and Sky and I and my father were walking down Hollywood Boulevard, and all these normal young ladies and old ladies and people looked at him like Jesus just landed in a UFO. He looked that much different. But he was, looked like a rock star would be now, but in those days, that was like an alien. So I was really impressed with that. I go, wow, I want to be like this. And of course, he was dressed. He had an incredible flair for fashion. You know, he had a wicked coat on like Jimi Hendrix and killer white loafers. And he just had a, a lot of senses of style uh, visually in clothing and artwork. So I was just really impressed. And of course, my dad, as I said, was grooming me. 
and I was learning how to mix. It was four track to two track or four track to mono. So that was cool. And I was just impressed with him. And they were really nice to me because they were grateful that my dad was releasing their record. So I was like their mascot from then on for many years. And I even helped their roadie Richard France play in gigs in Ventura and Santa Barbara and stuff. And I was the roadie. So I was learning that side of it, you know, loading anvil cases. And I remember when they got their super Beatles, that was really fun. And I had my garage band when I was 13 or 14, and they loaned me all their Super Beatles and their PA system, even Sky Saxon's mics. They said, oh, you want to borrow it? Okay. Unbelievable. And, uh, <laughs> and your band was called A Web of Sound. Yeah. Of course, I took it from that, and our band played a lot. Our first gig was at Jennifer Jones's house, who was married to David Oselznik, who was the producer of Gone with the Wind. And their daughter rode the bus with me at my private school, which is called Buckley, which is very high-end private school. I was lucky to go there. And, you know, it's English style. You wear blazers and stuff. And their daughter rode on the bus. She says, oh, I'm having a Halloween party. Can I have your band play? And we each got 10 bucks a piece. We were so excited. And I was playing a Fender Mustang just like Jan. <laughs> so when you first saw the seats, I think you said it was in a small club somewhere. But it started to happen pretty quickly after can't seem to make your mind and then pushing too hard took off and before long they were playing bigger venues what do you remember about that sort of transition from clubs to you know kind of arenas and uh, concert halls well actually uh, i'm gonna have alec cover this too but it took a little longer than you think can't seem to make your mind didn't take off right away it got some buzz and we got some airplay but it didn't really take off but my dad said i love you guys make a whole album so he did that, and then Pushin' took off eventually. That was the second single, roughly. And then Can't Seem to Make You Mine was reissued again and became a hit. So it just opened the hose valve at first, but it wasn't a hit until after Pushin'. Uh, so they were playing at a bowling alley in Culver City, and they were playing at Beto Lido's in downtown Hollywood. So they were real underground, but they were getting a sensation and lots of girls were ripping their clothes off. So it was really cool. And you could see, and they were also developing, you know, the secret of a band is staying together. You get better and better and better. When guys shift personnel and all that, you guys know this, you know, you lose your momentum. So they stayed together and they wrote a lot of good material. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll just, I'll just add to that if I may. Um, I mean, Neil's right, uh, but it really was principally a, a full year from uh, you know the the re first release of "Can't Seem to Make Your Mind" to the the C's kind of breakthrough, especially on the national level. Uh, both "Can't Seem to Make Your Mind" and uh, the second single "Pushing Too Hard" got you know got airplay, but not really much in the way of traction beyond California and a few other markets. And then there was a third single, "Try to Understand." Uh, that made a bit of noise, and the thing about Gene Norman was that uh, you know his business was really predicated on full-length albums. You know, he might occasionally do uh, one-off singles with people, but if somebody was actually you know making generating some heat, he would have them record an album, which is very unusual. Also, it's unusual that that first Seeds album was you know completely original, which was not something you saw too often in rock and roll right. at that time. 
And um, of course, it looked completely strange, you know, the cover art and everything like that. Um, but the thing to remember about the seeds in that period is they were exceedingly hip. I mean, you know, they were right on the level with door, the doors, the early doors, and the love, uh, you know, Sons of Adam, whoever else is making the scene in Hollywood. They were right there uh, as kind of top of the underground uh, set. And, um, you know, until when Push It Too Hard became a national hit at the end of the year, and Mr. Farmer, which is released in the interim, became a big hit in uh, Southern California, uh, that's when they kind of started thinking as pop stars. And it was also when uh, uh, Tim Hudson became their manager at that point. And he's the one that really, you know, developed the hype that, uh, you know, sent them into the kind of, you know, the big the big venues and uh, the whole kind of flower power thing that became their sort of their calling card and sort of their downfall. Yeah, let's too. talk a little about Lord Tim Hudson for people listening that don't know who, who he is. Um, tell us about who he was. I mean, I mean, he was an English guy that ended up kind of making a name for himself in California. Yeah, he was a, um, I mean, he originally started um, his claim to fame as he discovered the Moody Blues in uh, in England in 1964. And there's kind of a grain of truth to that from what I understand. But the thing about uh, Lord Tim was that, you know, he was uh, a hyperbolist. You know, he'd love to uh, uh, exaggerate his role in things. But he also had a lot of balls. You know, he went over to Canada, became a big uh, DJ in uh, that market, uh, you know, trading on the English thing, of course. Uh, and that led him down to Southern California. And, you know, I think it was on K- KWB, which, what was the station he was on, Neil? That uh, was really big. KFWB. He was... Uh, dr- KFWB, yeah. Drive yeah. time. He was pretty hot. And as Alex said, the English thing had tremendous merits, you know, for Americans. Yeah. So anyway, he uh, he graduated into management. I think he got, uh, if he wasn't fired from uh, a, a KFWB certainly stopped working there, and uh, he got in with the the seeds and um, became their management under Brompton Management, and uh, really, I mean, just did a number on the on the uh, promotion um, that really has a lot to do with the the seeds kind of visibility right at that moment. He um, you know designed these press releases and would like you know send stuff all around the world uh, about the you know the new flower power movement and how the seeds are at the forefront and all this and of course he you know he would a take credit for it and b insert himself into all of the interviews and everything but you know he there's a famous thing that he wrote somewhere that he and sky invented rock and roll or something like that you know one night you know in the hollywood hills you know which we all know is a load of cold swallow but um but he definitely as far as raising that profile he he did a lot there's no doubt about that yeah, the flower power branding really worked because it was easy, you know, it was an easy tag to pick up for the media, right? And magazine articles, flower power, it's a new kind of music and all that kind of thing. Yeah, they took it over. Uh, but originally, the seeds were earthy, was the was the word my father. So they didn't do that. They just jumped on the bandwagon when it came from hate Ashbury and flowers in your hair, all that, Scott McKenzie. Right, yeah. The first album, they look, yeah, like you say, earthy. They look, uh, <laughs> you know, they're they're out in the countryside in jeans and moccasins and uh, stuff like that, and and really long, kind of unwashed hair. And then the, yep. during the flower power era, they kind of cleaned up their image. They cut the hair and they started wearing more sort of flowery clothes. And uh, and Lord Tim was influencing. Well, they got into sort of a yeah. They were more teeny know. bopper. 
Yeah, Lord Tim had a lot to do with that. Yeah, he, you know, he he got them to cut their hair and uh, start wearing mod clothes and um, you know just being more presentable to the public, so to speak. Uh, and you know, it had it initially had a tremendous effect, particularly in Southern California, where they were you know one of the biggest acts uh, of their day for about three or four months. You know, from as '66 went into '67. But, you know, they quickly lost their underground audience. You know, the people that kind of supported them, Abido Litos and stuff like that. Um, and there's, you know, there's definitely a difference uh, in Sky's attitude once uh, Lord Tim got in. I mean, Lord Tim fed Sky's ego to the point that uh, he believed he could do no wrong. He probably didn't believe he was mortal, <laughs> you know, uh, and that, you know, you know every everything that he would turn his hand to would be a stroke of genius, which... Unfortunately, it wasn't the case, but there were a lot of things that people don't realize about season that period that are really unique. I mean, I think certainly a Weber Sound, their second album, is uh, really underrated. It's just being kind of a pop art type, you know, uh, rock and roll thing ahead of the curve in many ways. And then right after the recording of that, they went in and did a whole blues album, you know, which is actually pretty authentic, you know, chess studios type kind of a project. Didn't come out at the time, but it definitely shows that there was some uh, foresight there. Um, and so, you know, I think, you know, Lord Tim, unfortunately quashed some of those aspects and just sort of pushed them towards becing a, a you know, a commercial entity and kind of took some of the danger out of them. Uh, yeah. And then that. they started to get 13 year old girls instead of the hipsters. They got 13 year old girls instead who buy a lot of records. So it wasn't bad. It was a double edged sword. We'd like to thank LA for all you did for us because without you, we couldn't have done it. But thank you for helping me spread flower power to the world, because it'll be a nation of flowers. Alec was saying, like, for a three or four month period, they were like the biggest thing in Los Angeles, and I think probably the event uh, that sort of. Uh, represents that the best was they actually played at the Hollywood Bowl, right? And I think you were there, Neil. Yeah, it was quite incredible. Uh, it had Buffalo Springfield, The Fifth Dimension, uh, The Supremes, Johnny Rivers. It was incredible. And it, the audience was half black because of The Supremes. Right, and the, and the seeds were received like with, I mean, I've seen photos, as of course you have. Um, you know, the, the girls were invading the stage, there was flowers being thrown everywhere, and, it, you know, it was full-on like seeds mania at that point. Yeah, and they did a great performance. Yeah, they really got a lot of that at that time, uh, but it, unfortunately it was short-lived because they didn't, weren't able to come up with a uh, uh, a significant hit after the re- repurposed uh, Can't Seem to Make Your Mind. I mean, the interesting thing about, I always think about Pushing Too Hard, Can't Seem to Make Your Mind, and Mr. Farmer, which is the other, the sort of third, tr- third of the tree of hits they had in Southern California, is that all three of those songs are quite different. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they have different rhythms, you know, different approaches. It's, you know, kind of a canard about the seeds is that, oh, all this stuff sounds the same and it's two chords only and blah, blah. That's really not the case there. But where, as I was saying earlier, you know, Sky started to believe a lot of his own publicity. Uh, and certainly with uh, Lord Tim whispering in his ear, um, you know, felt that whatever he was going to come up with next was going to blow everybody's minds and hit the top of the charts. So when they started the future album, you know, he started coming in with all these ideas uh, that really, you know, the other guys in the band couldn't really understand. 
I mean, they did their best to translate the stuff, uh, and I think they did a pretty good job underneath. But um, Summer Sky, Sky was just starting to on that path of getting out there that he eventually, you know, finally went into orbit. And as we, all of us, having met Sky over the years, um, because you know he was an unavoidable presence in California in the in the eighties and nineties and two thousands, um, you know, realized you know he wasn't going to come down from wherever he ended up, you know, uh, and so. That was the start of it. But I'd say in 965, 966, Sky Saxon was at the top of his game. And uh, it's a sh- who knows what would have happened if, it, if a, a different kind of uh, direction had been brought in from somebody else. I mean, I don't know if they would have ever been on the same line as you know the San Francisco groups or what was happening back in the New York. I mean, musically, I feel they have more in common with you know some of the New York groups, you know, the kind of minimalist uh, just intense driving kind of a thing, um, hypnotic almost. I mean, you know, there's not that much difference between up in a room and, you know, uh, Sister Ray, you know, no, I mean, no, when you think about right. it. Yeah, it definitely appeals to that East Coast uh, two chord intensity thing, although I think they were a little more psychedelic. Oh, certainly, yeah. Than the East Coast, yeah, yeah which yeah. I liked because I like science fiction movies and and space music and obviously it evolved into pink floyd etc so but when future came out you know all the bands were trying to experiment a little bit more so that was part of the thing and they had to come up with something but coming up with hits my dad would say well he had something to say and he said it and that's the end of it so not everyone is paul mccartney right yeah yeah and just bringing in a tuba player is not going to turn it into sergeant pepper you know so that didn't really, a lot of that stuff didn't work. Yeah, I, I was there. I saw the improvisation. They weren't prepared. The old songs they played night after night in a bowling alley and got them where they were really cooking and developed. Whereas he literally, where is the entrance way to play? They made it up on the spot. And I thought it was kind of lame. Uh, I wanted to hear Up in a Rumor, Mr. Farmer. So. I was disappointing, but everyone believed in Sky Saxon because up to that moment, he was super successful and charismatic and handsome and everything was going well. But he just kind of, it was, uh, he let the air out of the phenomenon. But uh, some of the songs are good. Yeah, yeah. He needed someone there to say, no, that that one's not good. Try something better. You know, he needed a, a producer that was going to put a foot down, but... Exactly. Uh, That's part of how I learned how to be a producer is seeing what Sky Saxon did wrong. And I, I was too young. I was 13 or 14. I, I wanted to say, Sky, I don't like that song that much. Try something different. You know, I would have said that now. <laughs> but when I was 13, I didn't have the confidence to do that. Yeah. Having spent a lot of time, you know, sifting through all the, the Seeds studio sessions, in 1965, 1966, Sky was completely focused, knew exactly what he wanted, and the band were uh, equally contributing. Um, the future period is when Lord Tim was like, go, hey, baby, great, blah, blah, no, no real kind of quality control. Uh, when they got back to the basics, uh, particularly when they did the sessions for the live album, even though it wasn't live, um, it was live in the studio, uh, it was actually Gene Norman who was uh, directing the band, and he, you know, he would kept kept them kept them and kept them on their toes. He would some he'd use his his old fashioned techniques from uh, working with jazz musicians and whatever, and just say, "Come on, man, let's hear some heat." And you know, no, you're not cutting it. The rhythm's wrong. And if Gene had been if Gene had done Future, it might have been a quite uh, a quite a different kind of a thing. 
Now don't yeah. rush it. Play everything very deliberately and really go for the rhythm feeling. This is five, six. Because somebody might dance to it. That's it. Let's hear it. I think this is take six. Uh, Doc Siegel and Lord Tim Hudson, they weren't gifted producers, you know, like Phil Spector or uh, Paul Rothschild or whatever. You know what I mean? So I wish I would have could go back and do that. Like I helped Robin Trower that way. Uh, People lose their way. You know, even in my career, I've made some good records. But I go, well, what am I going to do next? That happens, you know, or else trends change. But they had everything going for them, but then they couldn't come up with it again. And also Sky was taking LSD more and everyone was telling him how great he was. Right. So uh, he just slowly disintegrated artistically in a sense. Uh, also, you were telling me once that he had a, a house in Malibu with all these hangers on and that kind of environment was how he was living and everybody treating him like he was special. And he kind of lost touch with his audience and with yeah he lost touch with reality and he lost some of his discipline and he thought he could you know fart and people would buy it you know right yeah yeah so with future he didn't come with a a handful you know with enough good songs really whereas the live album they did come up with a bunch of new ones yeah well exactly when we when it was finished it it was my idea to put out of the question a B-side into future. It wasn't for future. It came earlier. So that was a remedial track that improved the album. We were trying to get back to the C's old powerful sound. And luckily we had that in the can and a couple other songs. But like I say, a few of those songs, I think Alec likes them better than I do, but I think some of them are lame. I wanted to hear No Escape or Mr. Farmer. You know, where is the entrance way to play? I think that's Mickey Mouse. I was just going to add that, you know, another interesting thing of like going through the Seeds materials is that you can hear underneath all of the stuff that Sky and Tim Hudson insisted on layering on top of the future stuff. You know, the band was still firing all cylinders, uh, but, you know, they got increasingly estranged from Sky as his ego got bigger and, as you say, the hangers-on came along. And, you know, the last kind of hurrah was the um, was the sessions for Roar and Alive, and then Rick quit. And you know the once the the other guys in the band really were they were the conduit to Sky being able to do what he wanted to do. And when that conduit was broken and the morale was broken, then you know he went downhill very quickly. Yeah, in my opinion. absolutely, we can all agree on that. But we'll be right back. Let's talk about the documentary a bit. Like, you know, when, you know, when did you decide, Neil, that you wanted to do this, and how did you go about doing it? Well, uh, growing up in showbiz, as I said, I always have fantasies. Well, I'm going to make a movie about that. And my father would say he would be pressing a CD of Stan Kitten, and I said, "Dad, that's not selling as much." And my dad said, "Well, someday they'll make a movie about it, and then it'll start selling again." And that's true. So, having lived that. I thought it was a wonderful human music business, personality, music, uh, sexy girls, 60s story. So it had all those incredible ingredients. So I wanted to show that to people for fun and also maybe to sell a few more Seeds records. And also I wanted to go up the ladder making movies. So 
it all came together. And obviously, I had easy access to the music. Almost every cue, except for incense and pe- peppermints, uh, in the Seeds film, Pushing Too Hard, we we control it. So I got a discount on all that. So that was helpful. And it's um, it's sort of a promotional film. And yet, I think it's so good that everyone loves it. Like, I notice when I'm on the road, no one goes up to go to the bathroom in the middle of the movie. They're all sitting there going, oh, I don't want to miss anything. Cause, and it's not me. I'm just the messenger. I just brought all these materials together because I had unusual access between my father and Sky and Tim, and I was there most of the time. So I knew the story, and I wanted to uh, quash all the rumors and tell the truth. And it's fascinating. Rags to riches, music business, rock and roll, sexy girls, all that stuff. Incredible. It's fun. It is. It is. Uh, How much footage from the 60s was available, and how did you go about accessing that and licensing it for the film? Well, that was a challenge because there weren't a lot of people cruising around with 35-millimeter cameras filming the seeds. We had a few clips, but we mainly had to rely on TV lip-sync shows and the mothers-in-law. But luckily, those were really well done. Like they were on the sitcom Mothers-in-Law with Eve Arden, and Desi Arnaz was the director of that episode. So it's incredible. They sing in the bag? generation gap. <laughs> we'd like to do a number we plan to record. It's called Pushing Too Hard. We hope you like it. We, we think it's gassy. So we did that and then I filled it out with some pieces and of course Alec had all kinds of wonderful suggestions. It was really funny. Alec was focusing more on records and we were cruising around in my car doing errands or something and he kept uh, yelping and talking about the seas and sky and i go guess what you're going to be the producer of the movie and he said really so uh and he that turned out to be one of my best decisions and of course we have wonderful collaborations to this day the new lp of future came out and alec did an incredible job he's like the encyclopedia uh nobel prize winner of uh reissues so that's fun. So <laughs> it's true. I didn't tell him to sell that. <laughs> yeah. So we have a wonderful collaboration. Yeah. I think with the, the movie, it was important for me to just uh, uh, really take take the seeds seriously because, you know, uh, you know, well, you and I, Mike, we're of the generation where, you know, we discovered the seeds in the sort of punk rock days, especially in England, where, you know, the seeds always had a, 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 there's always been a fondness for them there, even though they weren't successful, you know, as back in the day. Um, because, you know, you could recognize that the energy you hear on their records was akin to like what we're hearing in the punk era. Um, and so it was important for me to to maintain that credibility because in this country, you know, there's a large tranche of people that, you know, were fans of theirs from, you know, from uh, the 1960s. And so it's for them, it's more of a nostalgia, one hit wonder, hey, remember these guys, blah, blah. Uh, and, you know, Pushing Too Hard was really an anthem of frustration for a lot of people. You know, they they loved that. It was one of the first times that they could kind of like, you know, pump their fist and, you know, pushing too hard against the government as much as, you know, whatever. So 
that credibility to me was a really important thing to get across, which is why you'll notice in the movie that there's we don't have much of Sky in his later years until the the last quarter of the movie because we wanted to show him when he was you know young and vibrant and full of energy and creativity, and the other guys you know Daryl and, and Jan especially. Uh, because they were able to contribute to the movie. Uh, Rick, unfortunately, was already very ill by that point. Um, you know, we wanted to make very clear their contribution. I should mention that I did uh, talk to Sky uh, and get ready to do an interview with him for the movie, uh, literally just weeks before he passed away. So we kind of, unfortunately, we missed that uh, that window. But um, it was, I mean, he was ex- he was excited about the movie. I had a long chat with him and his uh, his uh, wife Sabrina. Uh, they were all ready to go, but uh, like I say, the hand of fate kind of intervened, unfortunately, at that point. But I feel anybody, you know, it's an affectionate tribute to Sky. We don't laugh at him or or point out that he's an acid casualty. You know, we show his eccentricities, which are, you know, at the end of the day, they're, they're nothing to for anybody to get upset about. It's, there's only one Sky Saxon, you know. You know we, all, we all know that he, you know, he was a little off-center, but uh, that's what made him great. But I'm proud of the fact that the movie is authentic and true. I wanted to tell the true story. That was another motive of mine. And even though we had previous interviews that other producers had conducted, and luckily I had access to them, so I cobbled it together into a pyramid by using pieces from everywhere. And luckily I was able to complete the puzzle, and it's visually interesting, and other people had created pieces previously. Everyone wanted to play with Sky Saxon. Everyone wanted to film him. So I use older ones, and in a way that's good because everyone looked better. Even Rick, we just (laughs) cobbled it together so it's all authentic, but we had to uh, align it in such a way to complete the story with TV pieces and uh, audio pieces and the records, of course, and interviews, and I spoke a little, and... Uh, Bruce Johnson of the Beach Boys, incredible. He was a huge fan, you know, the Beach Boys. He won Grammy for best. Yeah, I, that was one of the one of the, for me. That was one of the uh, the most amazing revelations in the film was that the Beach Boys were big fans of the Seeds, and and in fact used to sometimes sound check with pushing too hard, which I mean. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And it, it wasn't just uh, uh, we didn't get him for the documentary, obviously, but Neil Young was a big fan of uh, the Seas back in the day. And they, you know, the, the Seas played with the Springfield on a few occasions. And of course, you know, it, it was very, very important to have Iggy in there because not only is a, is he, a, you know, a kind of the figurehead of, of uh, basic rock and roll uh to all intents and purposes nowadays but he's also very articulate in determining what was special about the seeds you know and um that was a really great interview to uh to conduct you know? yeah he's great in it yeah and i wanted to accomplish that i wanted other people to say how great the seeds were i couldn't do it you know i just was talking about idiosyncrasies and music history so I- i'm too biased because it's on our label crescendo records so I had to let other people do it. And luckily, everyone loved them as much as I did. Right. So, I mean, after the original Seeds broke up, right, we know life's, uh, Sky's life and his music career kind of became a little haphazard at that point through the next few decades. So, I mean, how did you kind of navigate that in the documentary? I mean, you know, it's talking about 30 or 40 years of time. You know, how did you go about doing that? 
Well, we were fortunate. We had a, a couple of people that knew him well in that period, specifically uh, uh, Rainbow, who uh, was actually very eloquent on talking about not just the period when he was Sky's guitarist in like around 1977 or so, but also Sky's uh, tenure with uh, uh, your know, father Yod and the Yahawa uh, uh, group, you know, which is really, uh, unfortunately, is one, that was when Sky in some ways was at his lowest ebb, so he needed that kind of spiritual pickup. You need to be a part of a group and, and everything. Um, and of course, once he kind of got out of that is when he landed back in in Hollywood and um, I think that's Mike when you, you know you were sort of doing stuff and he was rediscovered uh, by Greg Shaw's you know the, the Cavern crowd and all those guys right. in LA and that's kind of you know he became you know all of a sudden he was a somebody again but of course you, you see some of the we got a clip in there of him talking with Dominic Priori where he's talking about taking the world over again and like you know you know, his next record is going to be as great as Rolling Stones or whatever. You know, he always had that kind of uh, either a dream or a delusion about, <laughs> yeah. you know, his music. You know? Yeah. I, I want to address that, though. I want to address that really quickly. Um, being a performer, though, you have to have the confidence. You have to think, hey, I got something to say. I'm smoking. I'm going to go up there and show him who's boss. So you got to have that element. You can't say, well, maybe they'll like it if I do this. You can't do that. You got to have the confidence. And Sky had that, and he used it well, and he never lost it even. Even when he was, you know, old, he he still had that confidence, and the audience and the girls responded. I remember stories of he would walk into a club, not necessarily playing, but he was all freaky and dressed, and women would go, who's that? You know, he was just magnetic and charismatic and freaky in a good way. Right, yeah, he knew, he knew how to use his uh, charisma, yeah. So, again, if you want to be a performer, you better be confident. <laughs> well, this guy certainly had that, yeah. Yeah, I remember him telling me in, in like, 83 that he was going to be playing the Hollywood Bowl and George Harrison was going to be opening for him. Exactly. You know, so, yeah, he was... Oh. <laughs> he was confident. Yeah, he said the same thing at our, our very... Uh, the meeting I had with him just, just before he passed away because he... He, you know, he he found out I was playing with Chocolate Watch Band. So he said, "Wow, man, I'll get we'll get the C's, we'll get Chocolate Watch Band, we'll get Electric Prunes, you know, who also reformed. Um, we'll we'll play Coliseums and we'll ask for a billion dollars up front." You know, it was, uh, you know, and, and he was talking seriously. It was, uh, you know, it was charming, but at the same time, it's like, like I say, it's those it's those kinds of delusions that, uh, uh, you know, that's where you get the you know the fractured genius is the person that believes that stuff. He truly did believe. Uh, how important uh, you know he was, uh, and uh, that's what drove him. And you know, it's a shame that his creativity in his later years was too diffuse. You know, if he just gotten back to that focus that he had in uh, 1966, you know, um, he really he could have made a, a genuine comeback rather than sort of just flopping around from band to band and country to country, and right. you know, just doing kind of you know. To a certain extent, kind of you know, watering the seeds name down a bit, but with all of this stuff, right? You know? Yeah, yeah, he was. Yeah, he had trouble engaging the bicycle chain. You know, he was floundering around, and he made some noise. I saw him in later years. My friend Rick Collins played bass with him, and they had a pretty good band. And doing the entire catalog, it was fairly impressive. And somehow, Sky did pretty good. What was the name of that place on Hollywood Boulevard? Uh, the Knitting Factory. Yeah, so they played there in later years, and I go, yeah, that's pretty good. And the catalog was impressive. I mean, incredible. I was so proud of it. Yeah. 
So, um, you know, it has enduring value. And then regarding Sky Saxon, our crazy nutty artist, Morris Levy, who was the president of Tommy James and the Chandel's label. What was his label called? Roulette. Roulette. He had a sign on his desk, my father told me, and I saw it live. It said, give me the bastard with talent. And, he, and Morris <laughs> Levy didn't invent that, but that's a good phrase for our business. Give me the bastard with talent. <laughs> so, you know, that's... Go on. Yeah, one of the... Yeah, well, as I said, one of, uh, a really fun thing for me, I don't know if you went to one of these, Mike, but when I first moved to this country in early 1989... The original seeds actually reformed, you know, Sky, Rick, Daryl, and Jan, and they did a few, a handful of gigs up and down California with love. Um, and I actually went to a show up here in Santa Rosa, and I was just thrilled. But the funny thing was, I was thrilled mostly by hearing Daryl and Jan and Rick play, because Sky had already fallen into this sort of sub-Jim Morrison kind of uh, shtick, which, you know, wore itself out pretty quickly. Uh, but Jan in particular, it's like he been transported right back from 1967 playing through a super beetle with a fuzz sounded fantastic but then you know as as i've learned since sky took all the money you know it's one of those things where he was now in a a, just a different area you know and uh, he couldn't he couldn't see that what he had was strong enough uh to to kind of you know keep take care of everybody right that's sad promoter burdened them on half the money in other words, they got half the money up front, and then he disappeared without paying him the second half. So I know that. But they did sound good. But you're right. Sky was not as together at that moment. In fact, a friend of mine said that he had a long beard, and they talked him into shaving off his beard right before the set, which is freaky. No, no. Well, what no? What happened there was somebody said that he looked like Charles Manson, yeah, and uh, that freaked Sky exactly. Out, so. But he <laughs> so he shaved his beard. I, off. Yeah, I heard that he shaved like <laughs> half an hour before the the show, you know. So, uh, but I was there for the one in L.A. and it was reasonably good, you know. But it's too bad he could have made a living from that the whole time. Instead, he struggled financially. I'm sure. Yeah, you know, he could have had a reunion band for decades. Right, that's true. Well, speaking of that, Alec, you're currently playing in a new version of The Seeds alongside Daryl. Right. A lot, this actually kind of came out of the movie. Uh, you know, Daryl was you know an incredible uh, uh, contributor to the movie, not just through his interviews and everything, but also the photos and memorabilia that he provided really kind of helped, helped us flesh things out when we didn't have as much footage, like Neil says. And then he, um, he and the, the second drummer, uh, Don Boomer, uh cooked up the idea of maybe doing some shows uh i wasn't a part of that but uh a little bit later on he approached uh paul uh Kopf, who's my musical partner in, in other endeavors and uh i to play with them and so you know of course it's a thrill to play with daryl hooper uh and we you know we would have liked to have jan involved too but he he was very ill too and it wasn't long before he would pass away um, and so, you know, it's been a lot of fun. I mean, it, I don't mind saying it's like with a lot of the older musicians I've ended up playing with, like whether it be the Watch Band or the Country Joe or whoever it is, uh, you know, it's a thrill. It's kind of like uh, rock and roll fantasy camp uh, or probably more like Viagra for these other guys. <laughs> but uh, the, um, but, uh, but it, it, it not in capturing the spirit of those records that I loved when I was a teenager, 
uh, you know, in a live situation. And, you know, I mean, of course, people are going to be cynical. We've had a lot of like, you know, how dare you without Sky Saxon or whatever, all that kind of stuff. But they don't realize that Daryl Hooper had as much to do with the way the seat sounded as Sky did. I mean, he really was the architect of the musical aspect of it. And besides, he, you know, he's the last man standing, so he should have a victory lap. So, so we go out and do shows and, uh, you know, people respond uh, very favorably when they, when they're open-minded enough to come and check us out. And, um, you know, we've done some recording. Paul and I wrote a couple of songs just sort of in the spirit of, uh, of the original seeds and people have uh, been favorable with those too. So, you know, it's a lot of fun, but it's really, you know, you know, it, it, we're not, it's not a tribute band. It's just a, you know, play the music in the spirit it should be played and people are into it that's great you know and i can vouch for the fact that they did a wonderful job and daryl sounds great and the musicianship is excellent and they're just providing you with a window into that wonderful intense rock and roll exciting music and i can tell you i was there in 1966 and i was there in london recently and i loved every minute of it and it gave me goosebumps yeah i mean you know there's a, there's a lot of controversy over like uh, older musicians going out and doing it uh, with younger guys, and I know you you've done this too, Mike. You know, with Randy and whatever Randy Holden. But uh, you know, at the end of the day, that it, realistically, that's all that can happen at this point in time. I mean, you know, yeah. now yeah. the Sonics, you've only got one original guy. With Monkeys, you've only got one original guy. I mean, uh, you know, it's it's just the it, that's just how it goes. It's how evolution. You know, people die, so you know. That's it, and you know. Where, if you look at the live market now for rock and roll, which is so pitiful for anybody who isn't like a huge star, uh, you know the most successful bands are the tribute bands. You know, people would rather go hear like you know Petty Theft or Super Diamond than they would you know a, a, someone doing their own original material or maybe a, uh, a you know a vintage musician that's got some young guys that can do it. You know, like you know Johnny Eccles with the Baby Lemonade doing the love thing or whatever. Um, it's kind of a shame that it's gone to that, but uh, well, there must be twenty three Led Zeppelin clone bands, and I'm sure people go in and enjoy the material. So the seeds is even better than that because it has Daryl and Alec, and it's a powerhouse, and it's fun. And even Paul, uh, it looks faintly like Sky Saxon when he was thirty. So that's kind of fun. He's got the hair. Paul, Paul does a great job. Yeah, exactly. And he's he nails it. Like, I made a career of redoing science fiction music, greatest science fiction hits. And, of course, there's always people who are detractors. But I sold hundreds of thousands of albums, and I get many compliments. So good material is good material. Yeah. Right. So the documentary is now available for streaming. So where can people see this documentary? A lot of people have been waiting a long time for this. Thank you. Well, it's on a, an interesting platform called Vimeo, V-I-M-E-O, and you can find that by going to pushingtohard.com, pushingtohard.com without the G, pushingtohard.com, and you get complete instructions, and it works perfectly. And you can watch it, and it's really fun. And I watched it the first time, and the quality is superb. The technical aspect is perfect. No problem at all. So that's the next shtick. And you can see the seeds live occasionally. And we even had some gigs where we had the movie and the band, like in London. And it was incredible. I loved it. And I, and I, no, I was going to say, I just also mentioned that we're, we are looking at doing a physical release uh of this uh, of the movie too with extras so that's something to look forward to in the near future yeah exactly 
Right. Yeah, it's a great movie. I mean, when I first saw it on the when I first saw it on the big screen and and the the opening of Pushing Too Hard from the Mothers in Law came on, I mean, I got goosebumps. That was just fantastic, you know. And uh, yeah, uh, I've seen it a few times, and I'll watch it a few more times. Dynamite! I'm so glad that you enjoyed it. Oh. Yeah, absolutely. So what are you working on now, Neil? You said you were going to start working on a documentary about uh, Gene Norman. Yeah, I'm going to do a movie about all my dad's adventures. And again, he was incredible. He was number one on the radio. He's in the Hall of Fame of three different industries, radio, nightclubs, and record business. He's in the Hall of Fame of record business and nightclubs and radio. So he was a powerhouse and I was influenced with him. And luckily, I didn't get stuck with being in his shadow. He told me when I was a kid, he said, no, Neil, you're going to do your own thing and don't worry about what I did. You can learn from it, but you're going to create your own identity. So that's very important. So he mentored me. I was very lucky. So I'm going to do some material about me growing up and his adventures. And he dated many beautiful women, including my mom, who was a cover girl. And uh, the Sunset Strip and the black jazz scene and the white jazz scene and the record business, the good people and the bad people and crime in LA. And between he and I, we will have done a hundred years in Hollywood. So that's incredibly rich history to pull from, to create any show business entity. And of course, Alec and I will be doing more reissues of albums. We just came out with my dad's concert of Muddy Waters, which is really creating a sensation. Absolutely. And it's perhaps his earliest recording from a a concert in California. And believe it or not, the technical aspects are superb. So we're having a lot of fun with that. And just as a retro angle, we put it out on a 10-inch vinyl record. And Alec did a great job of putting that together. All right. You got to send me that so I can review it. Absolutely. We're having fun. And I got to meet Muddy at the Seed Session of the blues album, Muddy was there. And I didn't realize it at the time, but my dad had been working with Muddy for years. So Muddy was really cool and charismatic and of course a great performer. So I was so lucky to find this piece of gold buried in the archives. And we have some more fun surprises like that coming in the near future. Wow, sounds great. What about you, Alec? What's uh, your your next project that we'll be seeing? Well, uh been doing a lot of stuff with Shel Talmy's catalog, you know, the uh, fellow who produced The Who and The Kinks and Bowie, etc. Um, and, you know, he had a lot of really good stuff in the late 60s, early 70s, too. So a couple more projects on that. Uh, also digging into the uh, starting to let loose some of the live recordings from uh, the San Francisco clubs, uh, The Matrix and the Avalon, uh, one of the first one is going to be The Final Solution, which is a really storming kind of a folk rock uh, meets garage kind of a thing um you know uh lots of other stuff uh you know always pot lots of pots cooking you know uh doing uh some more 45s of this crazy guy called birdman uh mojo bone records you know <laughs> who i'm sure he's i'm sure he's been sending you copious t-shirts and messages in capitals you know <laughs> like he's shouting or whatever <laughs> yeah he's a good guy he has the passion for it so that's the beginning that's how it gets going absolutely yeah and uh, i gotta say in the record business at any moment you're dreaming about something and then you're also developing something then you're assembling it then you're manufacturing it then you try to promote it then you try to collect the money so it's a very long process to do all these projects 
Uh, I'm doing some more, you know, more kind of uh, uh, mastering type projects with people like Cherry Red. But uh, one thing that Ugly Things uh, readers and listeners might be interested in is uh, I, I put together uh, a collection of all Lost Shakers non-LP uh, sides oh. for Gerson, you know, to kind of complement the uh, uh, the previous reissues they've done of their album. So, you know, it's got all those great uh, singles like Stop the Games and oh, yeah. Tell Them and Alleluia and all that stuff. So that was a lot of fun to put together. And there's some photos even I've never seen before in there, and I thought I was a Lost Shakers, <laughs> you know, pervert. But, uh, you know. And a big question, gentlemen, is – how can we sell more records? Because as I said, I need the money to pay for the next record or the next movie. Well, just put out good records. <laughs> well, I keep telling Neil he should put out, uh, you know, Phaser Laser and some of his proto-punk stuff where, you know, he was dressing in like silver costumes and playing kind of space rock before oh, yeah. everybody else was, you know. Uh, you know, you know the, like the Mabuhay Gardens era, Neil. You know, you should really uh, get some of that stuff out there. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm developing that and I'm touched that people were enjoying that because I sort of went off on a fork into more serious science fiction and soundtracks and reissues and record executive. So I was really trying to be like David Gilmore meets David Bowie kind of guy. And I had a lot of fun with it and I played with a lot of famous people. Uh, and it was moderately successful, but I'll always wonder what would have happened if I would have stayed right on that road like Sky Saxon did of just, hey, I'm going to be a rock star. Right. We'll never know. But I think there's, there's an audience for it now that, that, uh, that will appreciate that. Well, I'm touched, I'm touched by that. And, of course, I'll have you guys consult me on how to do it. <laughs> The Ugly Things Podcast was produced by James Archer and narrated by Mike Stacks. That's me. I've been publishing Ugly Things magazine now for 40 years, covering the best overlooked music of the 1960s and beyond. You can order the latest issue of the magazine at uglythings.com. That's ugly-things.com, where you can also order back issues, vinyl, CDs, and books, and read additional articles and reviews. Please subscribe to the podcast, leave a review, and tell your friends. We would also appreciate it if you became a Patreon supporter. For a small monthly donation, Patreon members get exclusive access to all kinds of interesting bonus content. Your contribution will help us keep bringing you the very best in 1960s beat garage and psychedelic music. I'd like to send out a personal thank you to our top Patreon supporters, Chip Lyon, Rob Brannigan, Ray Brandis, Michael Barbera, and Phil Payne. Thank you, all of you, for your support. And thank you for It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 